You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I'm Ruthie Fearberg, and this is Why We Theater. The podcast that digs into the onstage works we love to make the offstage change we need. After all, that is Why We Theater. Today we welcome actor Isaiah Johnson to discuss the musical The Color Purple. Isaiah played the role of Mr. in the original Broadway cast of the 2015 revival production opposite Cynthia Erivo. For those of you who don't know, The Color Purple by Alice Walker was published in 1982 and won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 1983 before the book was adapted into a movie by Steven Spielberg starring Whoopi Goldberg and Oprah Winfrey. In 2005, the musical version opened on Broadway starring LaShans with a book by Marcia Norman and a score by Brenda Russell, Allie Willis, and Stephen Bray. Ten years later, in 2015, the musical came back to Broadway and won the Tony for Best Revival of a Musical. The story follows Steely from age 14 to 54. We first meet her when she's pregnant with her father's child. A victim and survivor of multiple kinds of abuse, Seely is then given to Mr., a widower in the community who needs a wife to run his house and raise his kids. Mr. unleashes his meanness on Seely, and she endures more abuse at his hands. I wanted to look at the character of Mr. specifically as we investigate generational trauma. What does it mean to carry the trauma of your ancestors? How does this type of trauma affect people, specifically Black Americans? What tools are there to heal this trauma for those experiencing it? And how can non-Black people support Black healing? Our experts today, Curtis Smith, Simone Fuller, and Dr. Shakiva Hall have some thoughts. I want to add, The Color Purple is absolutely Celie's story, and a story of strong Black women. When it comes to patterns of generational trauma, however, Mr. is a prime example of a person who has endured trauma and directly passes on that trauma, directly inflicting it onto others. So we begin with the man who inhabited him, Isaiah Johnson. I am so excited to have Isaiah Johnson on the podcast today. You guys may know him from Hamilton as George Washington or from Sideshow or from The Merchant of Venice, but he will forever be Mr. from The Color Purple to me. 
I'm so excited. Welcome, Isaiah. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I, I hope I'm so glad that the number of people that will burn me in their memory as their forever Mr. Small. I'm so glad it's just you. <laughs> <laughs> so glad. I mean it as the best compliment. No, I know. Though, and I we know. will I'm get teasing. to why. We will get to why. I'm teasing, yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, when you mm -hmm. heard that a color purple revival was coming to Broadway, mm -hmm. did you know you wanted to play Mr.? I, you know what? I can't, I can't lie. I think I'm going to go ahead and say yes, only because every time I saw that in the film and then I saw the original Broadway production, every time I came across this role of Mr., there was always something in the presentation of it that connected with me mm. and also did not fulfill um my experience you know the audience is always subconsciously they're always trying to look to get their own needs met like when right. we watch shows it speaks to us in the way that we needed in that moment and every time i came across that character it there was a part of me that needed to see something for my own healing mm -hmm. and the storytelling didn't necessarily lend that to me at that time not that it should because i selfishly needed something right and so when that opportunity came around i was like okay here's my opportunity to explore myself and see what is that what is that aspect of me that is not getting fulfilled by this character and did you find that answer I sure, yeah, you know what? I don't know. I actually don't know. That's a great question. I don't know if I found it. I definitely know that I tapped into parts of myself that I hadn't tapped into before. And I definitely know that I was able to reach my goal, which is I wanted to create a character that every everyone in the audience who identified as male could see themselves in. Mm. I wanted to create a character that um, all of the women, those who identify as women in the audience could recognize. I wanted to create a character of, uh, so the challenge that I put before myself was like, how can I in two hours uh, show them a good guy, a charming guy, a bad guy, a guy that you can't trust and a guy that, you know what I mean? Like, how right. can I, how can I kind of touch on all of these different kind of masculine archetypes in, in one male and mm. in one, in one story. And was that, do you think what you were needing that you weren't getting was just that full range and that full breadth or like, what, what were you looking for that wasn't there previously in the iterations I, that you saw? To be honest, I was looking for, I was looking for the man that I knew. Mm. I could recognize Mister's behavior in various masculine figures in my life, in moments of their life, but I loved all those men, mm. and I just wanted to see the fullness of that—the men that I knew. Mm. Mm. I mean. Your performance, like I said, of Mr. It's just, it's seared into my brain. And that 2015, 2016 Broadway season was insane, but it I will say it here and now, I still think you should have been nominated for a Tony, <laughs> neither here nor there at this point. But, you know, just to say, like you created someone you. so present, mm. like, and so his presence 
was so present even when you were not on that stage and so energetically real. Mm. How did you go about creating this person that you would recognize, that you wanted people to recognize? Uh, well, I think first and foremost, I, I wanted to go through the given circumstances, you know, as actors, we're always looking at like, what, what is the basic foundation of information that I have about this character, about this story? And I love, one of the reasons why I love acting as an artistic art form is because I get to do, you know, journalism. I get to do research and I That's love right. history. I will deep dive and get lost and try to find my way back out. But, um, I think one thing that I needed to understand is that w what was black life and black American life like at that time? Mm -hmm. And how did that affect his immediate environment and the environment of those around him? And for those who don't know, it's set at the, in the early 1900s and goes forward for 40 years. So like about 1909 to 1949. Absolutely, absolutely. And then what I found in doing that research is that I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> Funny enough, there's a lot of kind of cultural normatives that are still that still exist today. Hmm. You're dealing with an extreme lack of education and this particular person and and preferably and in this community, you're dealing with an extreme lack of education. You're dealing with an extreme lack of resources outside of uh, trades that would learn during slavery that was passed down. Um and once again, you're you're passing down oppression, right? Yes. <laughs> and so, um, in a, so many ways, these people were traumatized, mm -hmm. and their behaviors, their outlooks, their desires, uh, for all intents and purposes, not without love, but with trauma. They're they're working from traumatized places. And I wanted to understand what, how does someone become a mister? Hmm. How does someone become a mister in their community? Uh, and that took me down a lot of other roads, reading other works um, by the author. I happened upon, strangely, I happened upon the semi-autobiography of Charles Manson. Hmm. Uh, read that down. That gave me a lot of information. Huh. What'd you um, find in there? Well, I found from the words of someone who is looked at as a mister, mm -hmm. a mister type, I was able to hear from his own words the aspects of his life that led to his ultimate demise. Mm -hmm. And what I discovered was that I was like, oh, wow, you are you are actually quite interestingly self-aware. Huh. And I think that was part of his charm. He understood exactly the aspects of his life that led to where he was. He didn't necessarily agree with his final state. He didn't necessarily agree with everyone's opinion about him, but he understood how he got there. And I was like, that's fascinating. Cause mm. we kind of look at sociopaths as kind of this out of sight, out of mind uh, presence, but they're not crazy. Mm. You know what they're I mean? They're actually they're very, in tune with what, with their own behavior. Exactly, it's just that the justifications that they have found to support their behavior are based on things that they don't realize may be unhealthy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in finding out what makes 
a mister and what makes this mister? Mm -hmm. What backstory did you discover? Did you create that made him this way? Well, at this particular time, one thing that kept coming back for me throughout the year long uh, process was that at this time, Black Americans are getting lynched mm -hmm. on a regular basis. That's right. And without just cause, without due process, and oftentimes without any information other than so-and-so didn't come home last night. So-and-so is still not home two weeks later. Mm. Oh, I heard through the rumor mill, so-and-so is no longer with us. Mm. And that's how we get the lynching memorial that we have in, what is it, Alabama, I think? The countless names, countless names um, of people that just didn't come home. And I'm thinking to myself, how would I feel if I was growing up in an environment where I literally did, would not know and had no control over whether I was going to come home? How would that affect the way that I love? How would that affect the way that I disciplined my children? How would that affect the way that I saw the world? How would that affect my idea of myself as a man, you know? Yep. One of one of the first things you're told as a as a black man in this country is you got to learn how to protect yourself. So yep. what if I lived in what if I lived in a state where I didn't feel like I could? How emasculating is that? And how might I then exert that masculinity that I feel is lost in my own mind in other ways on other people in other environments that kept coming back. <laughs> and the sad part about it is while we were doing the color purple that became ever more present in real time in right. our society. And I remember there was one performance. <clears throat> I can't remember what was going on, but I always try to read the news when I wake up just to, you know, that's where I get a lot of artistic information, to be honest with you. I might see hmm. a story of a person that I'm like, oh, wow, listen to the story. And I add that into the performance for that night. Huh. And I can't remember exactly what it was. It's sad because I probably intentionally tried to block a lot of that out. Right. But um, I remember on this particular night, I had read something that day and I felt this deep, deep emasculation in the performance. And then at the end of the show, when we got to that place where I had to tell Celie, you're poor, you're black, you're ugly. I turned to the audience straight on and Celie was behind me. And I said those words, I couldn't look at her mm. in that moment because I did not want to say these words on this night. Mm. And I found myself turning towards the audience to say it straight directly. And in my mind, I'm thinking, if, you know, as a character, I'm saying to the black people in this audience, this is who you are. This is who we are in this moment. There is no hope. We are dispensable. And um, I'll never forget that performance. And we all felt it because we came in, we walked onto the stage with all of this information, right. you know what I mean? So it was a wonderful, wonderful labor of love. It sounds sad, but those are the cathartic moments. Those mm. are the healing moments that we get back because now we're able to not only walk in the shoes of our ancestors, but we're also able to kind of build a bridge to first value where we are based on their sacrifice, mm. 
and then charge ourselves and challenge ourselves on how we can now, where do we take this torch that we've been right. given? If these things are still happening, where do we take this torch? What do we do? What shifts, adjustments do we need to make? Yeah. First, thank you so much for sharing all of that. Because, I mean, I think we all need to just breathe and sit with that for a minute because it is, like you said, it is not just 1909 and it is not just then that lynchings were happening. It's not a rope nowadays, but make no mistake, you do not know whether you're going to come home at night based on the color of your skin in this country. And that's actually you know what you what you bring up too about the oppression that mister was carrying is really the impetus for this conversation today because it was a panel at the new york public library schomburg center where i saw you and cynthia riva who played Sealy, and one of your producers scott sanders and one of your writers brenda russell in conversation with michaela angela davis who mm -hmm blew my mind. Yes. And she drew that line of essentially the concept of generational trauma, which was brand mm -hmm. new to me. And mm -hmm, I learned mm -hmm. it in that conversation where she said, well, Mr. beat Sealy because his father beat him because a slave owner beat him. And again, it's not condoning abusive behavior, but it is tracking where we learn these patterns from, where we mm -hmm. learn maladapted coping mechanisms. And I'm curious, um, were you aware, you personally, Isaiah, were you aware of the concepts, maybe not the term of generational mm -hmm. trauma before playing Mr. Before, I know you also read The Third Life of Grange Copeland from, mm -hmm. from Alice Walker for this role. That's right. So were you aware of it? And if so, like, how did that inform your life and in uh, this work? Yeah, absolutely. I was absolutely aware of it. And I think that's kind of what I was speaking to in the beginning when I said I didn't see the men that I knew in this right. role yet um, because of my understanding of generational trauma. I, I love the men that I knew who might have been the misters in our community. Mm -hmm. Like I loved them because I understood them mm -hmm. in a way that they didn't understand themselves because I understand generational trauma. Now, the funny thing is that applies to all of us, right? Mm -hmm. Like we all have it, every single one of us in every single culture, we all have it. Even if it's, um, you know, it's, um, uh, my wife says all the time, like uh, part of her, part of her German heritage is the reason why she's a germaphobe and cleans like and saves yeah. and saves everything right even when it's completely illogical right mm -hmm. even when even when um the dishes won't they're going to be there and they're yeah. going to come back so <laughs> fast right so we all have it and i think uh part of our responsibility as adults and i'm sure Curtis will speak on this um later is that um, part of our responsibility responsibility as adults is to track our story, is to track our journey. You know, I'm a professor at Savannah College of Art and Design, and one of the primary acting assets, acting um, 
assignments that I assign in the beginning is this idea of a self-portrait. You know, mm -hmm. I pose the question, uh, if you were to no longer be on this earth, if you were to pass away, if you were to die, what image or item do you think best captures who you, how you want to be remembered? Mm. And I give them full reign on, they can take a photo, they can, I've seen people stitch things. Some people brought in something that they made, carved through wood. Like what would be the thing that you could leave that you would say like this, in some way embodies the absolute truth of who I am. And uh, we're responsible for our own stories, you know what I mean? And yes. I think particularly in black culture, we're responsible for the stories of our ancestors because we don't have the documentation. I don't have pictures of my ancestors. I don't have their birth certificates. I don't even have the slave records. Yep. So it's almost like you're living in this like this world where you know, you know it happened. You've been told it happened. You could read in books that it happened, but there's no way for like. But did it happen to me? <laughs> right, right. We and there's no spoke proof about that. Yeah, we spoke about that with Griffin Matthews in our Witness Uganda episode yes, too. Yes, so, love him. Yeah, there's all all that, and I mean, and what you're saying too about uh, understanding this traumatic past and this passing down of the trauma and the passing down of oppression it being the way that you could love these men. I think that that is also what you brought to this role was that, yeah, there was no question he was doing bad things. There was no question, but you managed to make this person who could have only been bad, could have only been abusive into someone who I will speak for myself, I had compassion for, particularly in that act two, when like Mr. has his breakdown mm -hmm. and it just wrecked me every time. Like what were the things that were going on in your head during that scene to, to I, be able to reach the audience? I think it was a culmination of my understanding of all of his, all of his shit, <laughs> you know mm -hmm. what I mean? For lack of a better term. Cause I feel like, you know, what I actually, realized in the end, what I learned from Mr. was that, oh, actually Mr. and Seely are very much similar. Hmm. They're very much on similar paths. Seely was forced into a situation that she didn't want to be in. Mr. was also forced into a situation that he didn't want to be in. Shook Avery was his great love. That's and right. Shook Avery left. You know what I mean? I mean, both of these people were um, completely oppressed by their surroundings and in their immediate circumstance. You know, I think we forget that. Mr. didn't want Seely. You know what I mean? That wasn't the arrangement. Right. He needed a woman. He needed a partner. He needed a wife to help take care of the, his children. His father was ever present in his life as this kind of reminder that you are not a man. You are That's not right. a man. I gave you all of this. None of this you earned on your own. Right. And that scene is instrumental in understanding him as well. Absolutely. So you have two human beings who are both longing for something else and stuck with each other as the uh, representation of immediate oppression. Mm -hmm. And I've, I saw two people kind of traveling the same road only because they were shackled together. That's right. Not not because they chose that road, 
And that helped me communicate that in that moment. But then it also helped me in the end with this acknowledgement that, you know, he never really said, I'm sorry. He never gave you the I'm sorry that you kind of wanted from Mr. But what you saw was two people who understood each other in that moment. Yeah. And there's Mm -hmm. connection and understanding. Well, I want to talk about all of these effects and all all of these dynamics um, and zoom out, you know, a bit on, like you said, how this is the this was your community growing up, how this affects so many African-American and black people affected by this history today. So I'm going to welcome in our experts. Get ready, drum roll. First, we have Dr. Shakiva Hall, who is a licensed clinical psychologist, anti-racist culture advocate, and wellness coach. She offers DEI training experiences that foster a community approach to both learning and healing. She has practiced clinically for over 15 years in education, community mental health, interdisciplinary medicine, and more, and we are so excited to have her. Welcome, Kiva. Hi. Hey. So happy to have you here. We also have Curtis Smith, who is the creator of Moment of Mindfulness, which is a mindfulness methodology and company committed to empowering communities in a culturally responsive and evidence-based way. He's also a former classroom educator who came to the healing properties of mindfulness through the loss of his mother, but he co-founded a Brooklyn middle school and developed a school-wide mindfulness program. He currently partners with the New York City Department of Education to host district-wide mindfulness sessions and workshops for the leaders in those schools. He works in many other settings as a mindfulness and wellness coach, and we are so excited to have him here today. Welcome, Curtis. Thank you. Thank you. What's up? Appreciate you having me. Absolutely. And finally, we have Simone Fuller, who is the co-director of the Restorative Justice Project at Impact Justice, which is a national innovation research center founded in 2015 that advances new ideas for justice reform. She's worked to introduce restorative justice in schools in her home state of Minnesota and has worked at the Vera Institute of Justice. Later, as part of Columbia University's Justice Lab, she worked to abolish the use of incarceration and promote community-driven justice alternatives. She's an adjunct professor at John Jay College. Welcome, Mm -hmm. Simone. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. All right. So, Kiva, we talked anecdotally, you know, with Isaiah Mm -hmm. just now about generational trauma, but from a more succinct definitional place, Mm -hmm. what is generational trauma? So intergenerational trauma is a concept developed to explain years of generational challenges um, within families. And it's basically the sending or transmission of information down to younger generations from older generations, also known as intergenerational trauma, trauma that um, increases over the lifespan and generations. So basically, it, if if you were a parent and you were exposed to um, something that was traumatic and for definition of what's traumatic, it needs to be sudden, uncontrollable, and extremely negative. So say you had um, something that was sudden, uncontrollable, and extremely negative occur to you, um, what happens is, your the way that you respond to that sometimes you actually teach your children um the coping strategies to manage that or you might take on um you know uh the style of the uh person who might have been um 
traumatizing you, right? So mm -hmm. depending on where you are in terms of how you um, perceive what happened to you developmentally, if you were like young, old, how your mind kind of maps onto that trauma um, could get basically carried out through later generations and how you're socialized. So a lot of times, even with trauma, um, you might see people do things that are like preventative, like they might have hypervigilance and you'll maybe talk with a child, for instance, mm -hmm. and you'll learn that they actually have not had that experience. But the way that the mom or the father or the caretaker responds, that's a learned behavior. And mm -hmm. so they end up, you know, kind of carrying on um, either coping specifically from the trauma or actually reenacting trauma that has been, you know, um, perpetuated. Shared, on them. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. Yep. Perpetuated, shared, trans transmitted in some way, shape or form. Generational trauma, also referred to as intergenerational trauma, sometimes referred to as historical trauma. Mm -hmm. Is it important to be able to name it? Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very important to be able to name it to first be able to get into a place where you might be able to do something about it. Mm. Um, when it's not named, um, the effects are really um, quite covert sometimes. And um, people end up carrying a lot more um, baggage than they might, you know, realize. Um, so uh, it's very, very important to name it. Places where that could happen is, you know, obviously in therapy. Um, but a lot of times people may not know what um, the symptoms look like to be able to name it. So mm. part of it is first getting educated around, hmm, might this be like a trauma response? And then usually going back, like, where did I learn that? Who, who acted similarly to me? Who's taught me that you can't trust people and mm -hmm. that, you know, I have to kind of be super suspicious about things. You know, if yeah. you think even about what's going on a lot of times in society, racial socialization as a as an as an aside is one of the most like obvious ways to kind of like infer um, the fact that we as generation and a society in terms of being black people in America might have um, awareness of the trauma that's gone on historically, that yeah. we now socialize people to be, you know, prepared for racial bias, for, um, you know, cultural mistrust um, and having that and, and also not necessarily appraising it as something negative, but really being in a place where we could understand why it's occurring and, you know, what the purpose of it is for. Right. It seems that the why is really important. And I'm curious from you, Simone and, and Curtis, just as I asked Isaiah, actually, were you familiar with the concept, even if you weren't familiar with the term, as you were growing up and as you started doing your own work, um, both in restorative justice and mindfulness, respectively? Simone, maybe I'll start with you. Yeah, I'm, I'm sitting here listening to Dr. Hall and just kind of revisiting some of the work that I've gone through. And I, I wouldn't say that that work started in childhood. When I, was a, when I was young, I don't think I had the level of awareness to kind of understand the patterns and, and the questions to ask to kind of 
deconstruct and understand my experience or the experience of those around me. Um, but as I've as I've kind of grown up and as I've become more acquainted with and connected with restorative practices, but also my own therapeutic journey and trying to understand mm -hmm. and kind of process harms that have happened in the lives of loved ones that are close to me and how that's kind of impacted our family dynamic. It's it's so clear to me that um, there's so much about what Dr. Hall is saying about the kind of ways that somebody might respond to the trauma they experience being passed down inadvertently to those that they care for, the ones that they love, their children, um, mm -hmm. as a way sometimes to protect them. Um, I'm thinking about my own experience with my mother, who I know has gone through some really traumatic events and the way that she coped was to really repress emotion, repress mm -hmm. and move on, really not address. And that has shown up in ways that I process and understand. And I think that that in restorative practices where so much of what we're inviting folks into is that, that level of questioning and processing mm -hmm. has allowed me to kind of understand where the questions I wasn't asking, the spaces I wasn't going into, um, mm. and, and kind of tracing that back to where it came from. So as a child, I don't think I knew and had the awareness, but as I've grown up and become more familiar, I can certainly see where knowing that may have given me some clarity or a different way to process how I was moving mm -hmm. through my life. Sure. Curtis, what about for you? Yeah, I can connect with what Simone was saying. Growing up as a child, didn't really have a name for or didn't really understand the term in, in terms of naming it. But as I grew and started my work in education, um, it just became more apparent that, you know, we are dealing with things that weren't necessarily ours and things could get passed down. And when dealing with kids, you know, especially at an early age, I taught middle school, I would see that firsthand. Like there's no way that they could be you know, carrying so much on their own mm -hmm. and through mm -hmm. deep conversation, which I very much promoted in my class, you would find out that a lot of these things came from, you know, what was going on in their homes and mm -hmm. it was passed down from their parents. And these stories and even ways of thinking were things that weren't coming from them. They weren't their own thoughts. And so mm -hmm. what I saw most powerful in addressing that was the practice of mindfulness. So that first that they could become aware and first mm -hmm. understand that knowing that this is something that's possible or knowing that this is happening is really the first step towards being able to grow and heal from something. And like Dr. Hall said, if you're not able to name it, then a lot of the symptoms can be covert and you not know that they're having an effect on you and you not know that there could even be an issue going on inside of you or mm -hmm. what that issue could look like. And so as I grew, um, and as I grew with my practice and mindfulness and grew with the kids, really understanding that concept and getting down to being able to do something about it was really where I think the power lies. And mm. that's where, again, I, I leaned on the practice of mindfulness because number one, it makes you aware. And number two, it gives you an actionable tool to help mm. with that trauma. So mm. when you're focusing on your breathing, these are natural things that can help support you in calming down natural things that can help support you in identifying what's going on inside of you, especially in today's world. I mean, we're so busy. We're on the go, especially in New York. Kids are on the go. Um, and so taking that moment to pause had a powerful just effect on them seeing things from a different lens. Yeah. And as Isaiah said, you know, we all, all the cultures have different things. You know, generational trauma was actually first looked at 
um, because children of Holocaust survivors, so generally Jewish, um, were referred to psychiatric care overrepresented by like 300% as compared to the general population. And it was, so that's when researchers started investigating this. Um, and we know that this happens in indigenous communities. Um, you know, it, it's widespread. Um, Kiva, I actually wanted to rewind also to the idea of the physical effects of what can be going on, how this actually, this trauma is not only passed down in socialization, it's not only passed down in coping mechanisms, that it also has a genetic and cellular component that it can change your DNA and it can change um, your, your biology. Can you tell us a little bit about how that manifests and what you've seen in your practice or in your career rather? Well, yeah, in my career, I used to work with a, um, a bariatric pediatrician, um, actually in Brownsville, Brooklyn. Like, nutrition actually begins, you know, uh, in utero, and how sometimes nutritional deficits um, in utero could actually um, uh, aid in children becoming obese, and how that could actually have um, some clinical implications later on for um, children who become adults in terms of their ability to metabolize food properly. And they're always kind of, although they're perhaps overweight and obese, they're still malnutritional. Everything that happens in utero, you know, if the mother is stressed, it's not just that it transmits some magical feeling onto the baby, mm -hmm. it's that there are mm -hmm. actually changes that happen in development to accommodate those stressors. Right, um, and you see on an emotional level too, and, and a lot of times um, neurological levels too, where if the um, the parent is also maybe undergoing a, a tremendous amount of stress, maybe a, a survivor of assault, um, um, you know, maybe home insecurity, those types of things, that that starts to have a play on um, the outcome of of the child in terms of their development. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's such a pivotal moment when people are um, needing a, a, a really great start to life. And, you know, if you're kind of yeah. starting out that way, it, it's just a deleterious effect of continuing. Right, right. Harmfulness. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
specifically in in the black community and particularly the black community in the US. Um, what I'm curious about is, you know, we're talking about sometimes there's trauma, something happened to your mother and that mm -hmm. can be passed down to you. But also there is this reality, like Isaiah said, of a history of slavery, a history of lynching, a present day of all of those things being reactivated. And I'm curious how Curtis, perhaps working with kids, how can we approach it in a way to educate and to name, but that is healing rather than agitating? Yeah, I think the first step is having the conversations and knowing that the kids are never too young to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, I know historically, even in the black community, we're taught not to have, you know, the conversations of what goes on in the home. You know, I was taught growing mm -hmm. up, whatever went down in the home, I wasn't to discuss it, you know, especially if it was something that was not so glorifying. Um, I was taught to keep it to myself mm -hmm. and I had to keep things buried inside of me and just kind of figure out how to deal with it on my own. And so knowing that going into the schools, having conversations and really just getting the kids comfortable first off in the classroom environment and building a sense of community where they can trust each other. And that takes time. And I had the opportunity to teach a class called DMP, decision-making period, where I would see the kids every day. And I knew that I had the most valuable thing, which is the time and consistency of their attention. And so when building their trust and when building sort of a class community where they could trust and, and open up to have those conversations, I think that's the first step. Now you don't start the first day talking about the different trauma that they've gone through, but you do mm -hmm. start off with, all right, let's, let's just get comfortable with each other. Let's talk about how we're feeling. Let's talk about what's going on in you know, our own sort of um, school environments. And from there, we're able to build. And later on, when you've gained that trust and kids feel a sense of connectedness, then you're able to dive deeper into some topics that could be a little bit more challenging or at the very least making them aware that these things exist. And mm -hmm. that would then lead them to having conversations at home or having them do their own research and their own sort of journalism, so to speak, on mm -hmm. what's happening in their family homes. And you know, it, each kid was different, each circumstance was different, but I think starting off with that conversation having a consistent platform where we sat in a circle where it was normal to have these conversations. It was mm -hmm. normal for people to open up. We deal with some different topics. It was normal for people to express emotions. I think that's where you start is educating them on one, what these emotions are and them knowing that the platform exists was something even more powerful because you could have a kid that doesn't say anything all the way up until week you know, week or month 10 in the school year. Mm. You know, they may sit in the back and listen, but just knowing that that's there, knowing that they have somebody, they have a class, they have classmates and these conversations are going. I think that was the biggest thing that we did in the school. So speaking of of the healing and, and putting it out there, Isaiah, I'm also curious because you were talking about how the role of Mr. could be cathartic for you, but I imagine that maybe the first time, the second time, the 10th time, it's cathartic. But after doing it for so long, 
how how was that for you? How were you able to keep going? I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it and I hated myself in the end. I felt gross. No, um, oh. I think, uh, you know, um, Simone had mentioned repression mm. um, and how that repression is kind of the key reason why these generational traumas continue. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the complicated thing about that is that on top of just living in an, an oppress, uh, a repressive culture, I, I personally, based on my experience, would describe American culture as extremely repressive. I think we have Completely a lot. Completely agree. Yeah, we have yeah. a lot more British Protestant isms passed down as a societal generation than we than we mm -hmm. like to give credit for. That's right. Um, and so what's interesting to me is, you know, repression, how do I deal with repression living and existing and operating in and assimilating to a predominantly white cultural lens and narrative? How do I deal with an authentic version of repression when I'm not in a, when I'm in an unauthentic space. Does that make sense? Yeah. And this is, and, and this is where a lot of, um, you know, a lot of cultural aspects of black America that might look, that could have looked more Afrocentric get lost. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I mean, even now, some of those stereotypes that we used to talk about when I was a child, we still talk about, you know, like the stereotypes of black people allowed, black people like it, it's some of these stereotypes actually that are the, the motivating factors behind a lot of these, um, these, uh, some of these hoodlums with badges and guns, some mm. of that is actually they're still dealing with working through their stereotypes of us. And so that affects mm -hmm. the way that they see black life and black right. bodies. Mm -hmm. And that's that's some of the root of their fear that leads them to pull the trigger so quickly is because they're operating from this place of stereotypes, right? So mm -hmm. I, I always question like, wow, like how do I deal with my own repression in it? unauthentic space. And I feel like I'm very authentically myself, but I also feel like I live in a society where if I walk down the street crying, nobody's going to ask me mm. what's wrong. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or if I'm walking mm -hmm. down the street praying out loud, they're going to be like that one crazy. Yep. You know what I'm saying? So I just feel like, you know, but in other cultures, this is the norm. You know, you go to Little Senegal yeah. in Harlem and you see men holding hands all the time and there's no sexual connotation associated with that because in Senegal, where I've been, like the way that men express their love for one another, it doesn't look like uh, what it looks like here. Huh. Do you know what I mean? And so yeah. I think all mm -hmm. of those, all of those things continue this form of repression. But how do you see your way out when you don't mm -hmm. live in a space that's going to accept your version of unrepressing yourself? Right. Because that might look different for me. That might not lead me to a therapy room. 
that might lead me to a different type of spiritual practice that you might right. not understand. Right. That might lead right. me to a candle, an altar. That might lead me to talking louder than normal. That might lead me to aggressive language at the frustration of being pulled over that I am entitled to feel. And yet my emotional expression of that is a life and death threat to you. That's right. That's right. We see it in the in the field of sports. Just what you're talking about is that the stereotype, not just informing the people who are stereotyping onto you, but informing the self understanding, the editing, the yeah. code switching. Yes. The yeah, a lot of that is 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 quite prominent and, and a part of a coping strategy that is also used. And we think about like um, socialization, like efforts, um, you know, within American Black culture. You know, there's cultural um, cultural socialization, which was um, really coming out of a place of saying that our styles of being are actually pretty glorious. It, you know, and that was coming as something directly in opposition to where you might be at any given moment when you're in white mainstream culture, and there's not a lot of space for you to be yourself or take up space. So you know, socialization came as a way to really be a, a form of protection, but also definitely came out of, I think, again, intergenerational trauma. And sometimes mm -hmm. having the combination of intergenerational trauma and vicarious trauma happening concurrently, which is essentially, you know, basically what we might see even in 2020 with the George Floyd and the, um, the Ahmed Arbery and a lot of these um, cases where people are not just being traumatized or holding trauma and trauma responses from generations back, they're actually still having to manage traumas that are occurring like on a, a current, um, right. very, you know, present right. basis. And I mean, some of the research I did Kiva in preparation for this conversation was about some mm -hmm. of those coping strategies too and the socialization of, mm -hmm. you know, even just the phrase like have to work twice as hard to get mm -hmm. half as far. You could, there are some researchers who trace that back to the idea of slave enslaved people who worked from sun up to sun down and that if they showed any sign of fatigue, that was a threat to your life. And so mm -hmm. that can manifest in other ways. A, a black mother might downplay their child's intelligence because mm -hmm. in the times you, of slavery, you're not trying to get your risk, child taken. Right. You're not trying to get your child on the auction block. Mm -hmm. And that right. so so the the behaviors iterate according to the time that we're in, mm -hmm. but they are that harmful oppression coping that's still a thread through time, which is, mm -hmm. I just want the listeners out there to be aware of, of this. Um, Simone, mm -hmm. I wanted to come to you because I came to you through um, watching the documentary, The Prison Within, which had your mm -hmm. colleague, uh, Sujatha Baliga, um, practicing restorative justice within the prison system. And our listeners are familiar with that because I've mentioned it a few times on the pod mm -hmm. that I, I really um, 
I really learned so much from that piece. But one of the phrases that stuck out to me was the idea that hurt people hurt people. And I think that that, you know, directly ties back to Mr. and the color purple. So I'm wondering what you see in your work and how specifically the restorative justice process addresses that. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that we see in restorative justice that we're constantly trying to disentangle is even our our understanding of who can fall under the category of a survivor or a victim, right? Mm -hmm. And the kind of idea that most of us hold is that a survivor is, um, and I think as we're talking about generational trauma and the idea of kind of who was allowed to be a victim back then, that has carried through in our, in our archetype of what a survivor looks like. Um, it's typically, you know, a white woman that still lands today as who we think about immediately when we think of survivors of harm. And what we are often working through is how much harm is present for those that have caused harm and how much of the roots of what has driven them to the moment that they were in or the kind of position they were in to cause harm to someone else was, you know, lives inside of their body as harm that happened to them. Um, and what restorative justice is an invitation to do is to ask those questions and be in a safe container and space to, to ask a question about what caused that cause and what caused that cause, right? And kind of really dig into an understanding of, you know, if, we, if our goal is to heal, if our goal is actually to move forward in a good way, then we have to ask those questions because the answer to what's actually going to provide healing might live at that third cause, mm -hmm. might live at that next layer down. Um, and so, you know, at, in our work with the Restorative Justice Project, we are supporting restorative justice for young people um, that end up in the criminal legal system, the juvenile legal context. And so oftentimes the young people that we're working with that have caused some level of harm to somebody else are invited to think about that harm, not just that they caused to somebody else, but the harm that they've caused to themselves in harming somebody else mm. and the harm that they've caused to their loved ones who, you know, are in direct relationship with them and are in some ways harmed by the harm that they've caused as well. And then the harm that their community has felt from the harm that they've caused, right? So it's trying to really expand their understanding of the impacts of harm, but also give space to think about what are the harms that have existed in those relationships as well that yes. have contributed to um, mm -hmm. kind of the harm that has been put forward in, in a particular moment? Yeah. Mm -hmm. To be able to get a little bit more specific on like what a restorative justice process looks like, I'm actually curious about like if this were accessible at the time of Mr. or if Mr. were here with us present day, like what mm -hmm. would his restorative justice process look like? Obviously summarizing, but I'm curious. Yeah, I, I spent a little time trying to think about this because, you know, there, there are so many factors that are important to consider about what would have been accessible. Um, and I guess mm -hmm. if we were to bring it present day and the, the circumstances that we know are present for Mr. and the harm that he's caused, I think, one, Mr. is has caused harm in a number of different ways, right? Mr. has caused harm directly to Seely. Mr. has caused harm to his son, right? And his understanding of what masculinity and toxic masculinity means and how he's expecting that to show up in his son. Um, and so for us, a restorative process is typically 
kind of done at the direction of the person who's been most directly impacted by the harm. So present day, Sealy or Harpo or, or somebody who had felt harmed or been harmed by Mr. would have been the one to say, I am looking for a space to really process this harm with, with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and there would have had to start with the space for Mr. to be ready to take account for what mm-hmm. he's done. Right, that's kind of the the starting place of a restorative justice process, and there's a lot of work that goes into preparing people to to arrive at that moment where they're ready to kind of step into a processing space collectively. But it would have looked like you know preparing Mister to start to ask those questions. What what is it about um, your life experiences that you think have brought you to this harm that you've caused? Right? Have you ever been harmed? Where did that come from, right? A lot of preparation for restorative justice processes is one, to build the relationship as kind of the restorative facilitator to make space for trust so that somebody feels comfortable enough and trusting enough to answer those questions and go with you through that process. Mm -hmm. But it's also an invitation to invite, you know, as those kind of things are being uncovered, invite those folks in, right? If it had been known and if Mr.'s father had been accessible, you know, what would it have looked like to include Mr.'s father yep. um, in that preparation? Yeah. And on the same side, or on the other side, um, Seely would have been prepping Seely to be able to just name what happened to her, mm-hmm. um, name what that experience was like for her, name the needs that co- had arisen for her as a result of being on the other side of that harm. And, you know, once everybody had felt like they were processed enough to come into space to answer questions, right? Seely mm-hmm. had asked questions of Mr. Why did you do this to me? Mm-hmm. What about, you know, ask questions that maybe she was holding about herself. What about me made you feel like it was okay to do that, right? She mm-hmm. might be blaming herself. Um, and to name what she needs to move forward mm-hmm. in the right way, that what can be done to make things right for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and, have, and have Mr. be able to take accountability through acknowledging, yes, this is what I did and to be supported to uh, directly take take on the things that had been lifted up as the needs, right? Mm-hmm. How can I help to meet these needs? Because I am obligated as the one who caused harm to help mm. meet these needs. And so, yeah. yeah, a restorative process is really, it's all of those things and it's complicated powerful. and it's long. Mm. It's powerful. Can I jump in here? Yes, please. Yeah. Up. Oh, Simone, I'm so glad you were mentioning all of that. And I'm glad you asked that question because one of the things that uh, I was speaking with Ruthie about was the way that we were able to see some aspects of what you just described, Simone, in the story when Sophia had actually um, confronted Celie mm-hmm. about her instructing Harpo to beat her, right? When she was basically um, being... Um, right. Harpo is like, I can't control my wife's right. stepmama, right. Seely. What do I do? And Seely's like, well, obviously, <laughs> this is what your father does to me. And I am right. I am mm-hmm. controlled. I am reined in. Right. So if you want a reined in wife, you should beat her. Right. And so that's a that's that's almost kind of like a promotion um, to do it as well, because he could have asked his father. Right. But he does. He now goes and asks someone that's being um, harmed you know, well, maybe if she says it's okay, or if she has an idea, and she has opportunity to say something different, but because she had um, feelings of resentment 
about um, her not being able to be as like um, strong will and assertive and resolute like uh, Sophie or Sophia. She basically kind of um, instructed him to do that. And what was nice about that was that Sophia actually came to her and it was only after she and Silly kind of um, spoke honestly about Silly's jealousy of her and her strong willedness and her being able to do the things that she wished she could, where they were able to actually repair that relationship. Mm. Um, and so um, just seeing that kind of like spark that awareness that there was space in that time period and capability for restorative justice. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, it, it seemed like it came first from the women. Yes. Doesn't it always? I was gonna say, it's <laughs> yeah. <most> well, <laughs> we get social, we get socialized to do that. But you know, I, I think it 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 can always come from, um, you know, a, a, a gentrified, stereotypical male as well. You know, it, it's about basically being um, honest and open about like kind of what is on your heart, and and it really illustrates exactly aspects of what you were talking about, Simone. So when you were really going through the process, I was like, hey, this, this totally happened. Yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. Isaiah, did you all, you know, Cynthia, Danielle, the rest of the cast, were you having these kinds of conversations backstage about your characters either early in the rehearsal process in like table work or later in terms of sustaining yourselves while telling the story? Um. You know, that's a good question. I don't recall that, but I do recall us talking a lot about giving ourselves permission to be authentic, mm. which is not common on a Broadway stage, um, yes. which I was going to say that's that seems counterintuitive. Yeah, I know. But I think oftentimes I think on a Broadway stage, you don't I mean, with a story as authentic as this. I think the director was very interested in getting a group of people who could almost come across as non-performers, getting mm -hmm. a group of people who were so in touch with themselves that they had the freedom and the comfortability to walk off the street onto a Broadway stage and that process, that transition be seamless, mm -hmm. which is not, a, that's not, you're not directed to that end often. And that actually makes a lot of sense for even just the design of the show to be so stripped, stripped down. back. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, I think I think a lot of times on Broadway, you're encouraged, you know, that you see palatable aspects of blackness, mm -hmm. you know, and I think this part particular story necessitated something a little bit different. Obviously, yeah. that's not all the time. I think, you know, that particular year, we had a lot of wonderful, wonderful shows that showcase various aspects of black culture in various time periods, right? Right. But that was a one-off. That was That's right. That yeah. wasn't that wasn't pre-planned. Right. So I think oftentimes when you see black faces in shows that aren't necessarily about black stories, you often miss out on that all that authenticity. Yeah. It's not to mean that the actors themselves are being authentic. It's just that the way that the characters written is not written from a black perspective. So it doesn't mm -hmm. leave a lot of room for 
a full, well-rounded version of blackness. Mm -hmm. It's the yes. blackness that the writer could intuit or saw. That's right. Then, That's yeah, right. I can't go in asking people to change lines and this and that. You can't do that. And you don't want mm. to. You want to honor the artist who wrote the piece. And mm. you want to bring mm -hmm. as much of yourself to it as you can. But I think he wanted to do that because he knew that we all had a different personal relationship with this community and with the stories more so than he could direct. So it worked mm. to his advantage as a white Scottish man to say, hey, bring your, your bring yeah, bring your stories to this story. Yeah. I, I can only bring my story and I brought as much of my story to it as I could. That's what led him to do the project, even though he refused to do it several times. Mm. Um, so Fascinating, fascinating. Curtis, I'm wondering what's going on for you. And also, I'm, you know, similarly to how I asked Simone, what would restorative justice look like for Mr. I'm curious, what would mindfulness healing look like? And what would a mindfulness practice look like for Mr.? I mean, first, it would take Mr. to have the courage to sit in a room by himself with his thoughts, with his emotions, mm. and that be that and to mm. do that on a consistent basis. It sounds simple, but a lot of us don't- No, that's scary. The time, <laughs> or we don't have the courage or willingness to do that. And so I think the first step is understanding the power that we all have inside of us and being able to sit with that power and listen and not necessarily expect answers where you do it one time and expect for something to come overnight, but really developing a lifestyle of being reflective, a lifestyle mm -hmm. of taking time to yourself. And I think that lifestyle and that commitment to that lifestyle is what gets you to where you're eventually trying to go. You know, there's a lot inside of us that we won't find out unless we're able to sit with ourselves and truly get that understanding. I'm thinking about how you know, Isaiah was saying they have permission to show up and authentically be themselves. Um, I can relate because in teaching and when we took on the project of taking over this school in East New York, Brooklyn, you know, we were asking the teachers to show up as themselves because the kids that we were servicing were in a tough neighborhood and the environment was already an environment that was um, deemed violent and there were a lot of things going on. And so when we got into the space, we were encouraged to bring our stories, to be ourselves. And in doing that, I think that's where I was able to connect with the kids. And when my mom passed, it actually happened the first year of the school being opened, and it really forced me to deal with it on a public stage. Hmm. And we did something every single morning. We did our morning meetings every 20 minutes and I was leading them in the morning meetings. And when it happened, it became news. So everybody in the school knew what I was dealing with and I still chose to show up and I, I had to address it. It's not something that I could hide and it wasn't something that I could just, you know, gloss over. And so that really- That opposite me. of repression. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so that was new territory for me. and. I dealt with it in a way where I began to seek answers. And that's when I began my mindfulness practice and I began mm -hmm. to bring it to the forefront of the school. Because some of the times I didn't have the words. It's, listen, y'all, we're gonna come, we're gonna sit, let's be still, I'm gonna turn on this music, let's just be with our breath. Because we all need time to just focus, recenter, and be with this moment. 
because we all need it. I needed it to. I was going to, to say. Yeah, you know, I mean, I needed it need before. It. <laughs> exactly, mm -hmm. I needed it before I could go on and be at my best and really putting myself out there and being vulnerable really gave other people permission to share their stories. Like, hey, Mr. Smith, I lost my aunt and it hurts. You know what I mean? And I, I, I'm dealing with X, Y, and Z. And so that's what I think jump-started the conversations and jump-started the trust is having someone who was visible to the, the school public eye put themselves out there. And um, I circled back on the mindfulness practice and I literally grew with that practice with our kids. Well, and I'm, I was going to ask, how can our listeners at home begin a mindfulness practice if that's something that they wanna do to heal whatever's going on with them? Generational, vicarious, present, maybe just some feelings of overwhelm. It doesn't have to be trauma. How can someone start? Yeah, I mean, I think in its simple form, you take time to connect with your breath. And I think that's where it starts. And I do a lot of workshops. And when I say that, people will take time, they'll breathe. Then they'll say, all right, what else? I need more. And I have to take a step back and say, well, no, why don't you spend more time with your breath? Spend months focusing on your breath and see what comes up. So I think really getting into a condition where you can be with your breath in its simplicity and explore what's there, I think that puts you on the track because mindfulness is not a heal all sort of remedy. Mindfulness is the first step towards understanding A, what's going on and B, what might you be able to do once you have that awareness? Because that's all mindfulness is, is awareness of what's happening in this moment. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, a lot of us don't want to face it. We want to stay stuck in the past. We want to jump to the future, not realizing that the vehicle to, to healing exists right here, right now. And right. the best tool that you can do to tap into right here, right now is connecting with the breath. And that's where the mindfulness practice is, is connecting with the breath. So I'd say start there. Mm. Simone, for those who aren't necessarily coming to it through the justice system, how do you think those who are recognizing what we've been talking about, this sense of, of generational trauma, what's your recommendation for people who are experiencing it to root it out and heal? I think just doing more to, to recognize the collective power in the relationships that we should have amongst each other hmm. as a Black community right? That there is so much that has been done intentionally to, to divide, to divest, to really separate um, folks' ability in the Black community to connect with each other and connect with themselves. And that, that is not, that is not the, the fault of Black people, right? It's not some, the burden of doing that work, unfortunately, right? It's, it is on our healing journey to be able to do that work, but the burden is not ours solely, right? That truth telling is so connected to that because the oppression didn't come from us. It didn't come from us originally. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's just so much to be done to try and break down kind of the divisions and the walls that have been put up, not by our own doing, but recognize that they are there intentionally and really do what we can to take that extra look and take that extra step to to connect and unify. There's so much power in that. And I think that um, we we would be 
in such a strong position if we recognize the power that can be built collectively instead of always trying to kind of be distracted by what's being put in front of us as kind of the the first step, which is, you know, trying to fight against systems of oppression, trying to fight against um, kind of a system of justice mm -hmm. that has never brought justice to Black communities. There's really a lot of power in just unification. If any of the listeners out there are feeling like this is resonating with them, are feeling like they recognize themselves in this conversation. What is a resource, an organization, a strategy that they can use to begin to heal? Curtis, we can start with you. Yeah, well, my company, Moment of Mindfulness, you can check out my work on my website, momentofmindfulness.com. Um, I have a bunch of guided meditations. I work with a couple of different companies where um, I do guided meditations. I have some classes that can give you a little bit more information about mindfulness and also do speaking engagements where, you know, if you have a community group or a school or a company that wants a workshop to dive deeper into the principles of mindfulness, um, I use my teaching background with music, art, um, and writing to bring mindfulness education to life so that people can have access to those tools. Love and it's really my mission to make them practical and accessible, especially for our people of color who, you know, a lot of people are sitting and don't realize the power that they have, or they don't realize what they can do at home to help support their healing. So um, my website is a good resource and, you know, anything that they connect to in terms of their own healing, you know, mindfulness is one way of meditating um, that may not speak to you, but there are different forms of meditating, whether it be, you know, writing, whether it be, you know, walking in nature, mm. um, it could be your choice of art, um, find something that speaks to you um, and do it with a sense of attention where you can be fully present. and. Um, I think that's one step that can help support people is be present with where you are, with what you're doing, um, and take time to develop relationships in your life that are happening right here, right now. Beautiful. Kiva. Huh? Um, I, I think I will piggyback on what Curtis is saying about the importance of recognition. And so another way that we can kind of um, gain recognition, obviously, to me is gonna be through therapy, um, being able to um, you know, sit and have conversations and explorations with someone that is prepared to um, be able to talk with you and um, hold space for you to um, grapple with what you know, has happened for you. What you know, my practice might do is uh, get them to really sit with what, what it means for them now once they found out this information and maybe grieving some of the loss of, of the um, experience that they once had. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, basically, I think if you can get yourself um, some therapeutic tools, um, it, there's tons of therapists that are out um, in this world right now um, that are culturally aligned. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we have websites such as Therapy for Black Girls and um, Psychology Today. I am on that site. Um, and yes, you are. Um, I'm working on my website right now as we speak. 
Um, but my name is the only name like mine on the internet. So <laughs> there you go. Be able to That's find helpful. me. That's helpful. <laughs> what about you, Isaiah? What are you thinking? Um, I mean, honestly, I the these brilliant minds that are with me have said the best of what could be said. Mm. I will just, you know, repeat the necessary. I mean, presence is everything. Mm -hmm. I think first and mm -hmm. foremost, I care deeply about the parents who might be listening. Mm -hmm. um, Simone had said something earlier about when you asked her about how do we how do we help Mister in in your spaces, and she mm -hmm. had mentioned, you know, sometimes it might be helpful to then bring in the victims so mm -hmm. that that person can see how their actions have hurt them. Mm. And then I was saying, I was thinking to myself about how that too is one of the big contributors to a continuation of um, trauma in the black community is just the lack of presence. Um, obviously us being present with each other, fathers being present with their children, mm -hmm. present with their partners. Mm dare to ask more questions about what you think you know. Children are so open and susceptible to hearing uh, genuine questions that you have about life that are completely unanswered. Like, where does silver come from? Kids love questions like that. And they love to see their parents not know things. <laughs> <laughs> they love that. They love that so much. Like, that is one, that is a way in. And whatever they say, say that that sounds right to me. Whatever mm. they say, just be present with them. And uh, that could be the start to wonderful, wonderful, wonderful healing within yourself. Um, yeah. Me specifically, I'm coming from a place of, you know, drama therapy and yep. teaching art. And so honestly, you can find me on Instagram at Isaiah's Lament, and then I will then direct you to my online virtual school, the creative school, I mean, the Freedom School of Creative Development, excuse me. Awesome. Where Love we that. can get some private sessions and group sessions and holler at me. What is your thought of how specifically when it comes to Black trauma and Black intergenerational trauma, how can non-Black people offer support for healing? You know, one thing that I think that could bring about just kind of a more collective opportunity for healing and addressing trauma is just a recognition that truth telling is so important, right? At, at the societal level and at the individual level, I think oftentimes, rightfully so, people are resistant at the idea that there is a level of truth that they are required to tell while recognizing the level of truth that hasn't been told in our society, right? There are so many ways in which our society has not reckoned with the harms that have been caused on entire populations of people um, and how that has been embedded and continues to be systemically present in the oppression of, of Black folks, of Indigenous folks, of, of Latinx folks, of so many folks who are you know, trying to reckon with that fact that that truth hasn't been told. And so there's that level of truth that I think we would all benefit from uncovering to then encourage others to tell a different level of truth at the, at the interpersonal level and at the individual level. You know, I was reticent to ask it of, of Simone, and I'm a little reticent to ask it because I, I don't know that it should be your job to tell us what to do. Uh -huh. um, but if mm -hmm. there are ways that you do feel that 
anyone outside of the black community can help specifically support the black community. I am all ears. If you don't feel mm -hmm. like answering that question, that's mm -hmm. all right too. <laughs> no, absolutely. I it was mentioned earlier, truth. Truth is key, mm -hmm. man. You mm -hmm. know, I, I have I have had the fortunate pleasure of being the token in almost every environment that I've mm -hmm. ever grown up in, whether it be mm -hmm. a predominantly black community or a predominantly white community. And what I can tell you, my tool for surviving those different environments, it has actually been storytelling and listening mm -hmm. to people's stories. And what I have found to be true through it all is that there is a human heartfelt reason why people believe whatever it is they believe. But most of the time, as Curtis said, we don't sit with and seek out the truth of what that is. And when you get to the truth, I guarantee you'll get to something that is shared by every human being across the planet. And most of it, mm -hmm. most of it is fear-based. Absolutely, yes to that. Kiva or Curtis, if you wanna add anything, I invite you to, if you don't, all good. No, I, I kind of um, am hearing what uh, Professor Isaiah J. Johnson is saying. Um, and I was thinking about like, just being in a place of remaining curious um, and um, a lot of times with children, um, sometimes curiosity is really um, squashed really mm -hmm. early. You know, children are very, very honest. They'll be like, you know, mom, dad, how come this person has no leg? You know, and usually what happens is the um, parent, based on socialization and their social, um, uh, you know, graces, decide to teach the child not to notice. Mm. And I think that's largely what happens in a lot of um, white um, mainstream culture where there was a, um, a pandering to not notice. You weren't allowed to be curious and to kind of ask questions that would then lead to answer. You know, curiosity is the gateway to empathy. Mm. And if we were in a space of being able to remain curious, there'd be a lot of things that um, are taboo that would actually become more mainstream. You know, people people need to be curious and um, to also suspend judgment. And, and That's right. That's the second part mm -hmm. of being curious. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Curtis, if there's anything you want to add. Yeah, I mean, I'll just echo what I've been saying. I think mm -hmm. the practice of mindfulness is, you know, observing without judgment. So if mm -hmm. people are living mindfully, um, you are becoming aware of your thoughts. You're becoming aware of your biases and you're becoming aware mm -hmm. of some of the things that are happening, not only with yourself, but with the greater world around you. And I think if more people practice living mindfully, um, I think we'd be a better place for compassion for each other. What you don't know, you can't change. And a yep. lot of people mm -hmm. don't know what's happening in their own bodies, in their own minds, in their own thoughts, let alone able to help somebody outside their race. Mm -hmm. So when you start with the self-love and you start with a sense of um, just awareness with yourself, I think you know the, the world and, and things will balance itself out because I think deep in the hearts of all of us, um, we're connected to love. And when we connect deeper to ourselves, I think the love comes pouring out. Yes. Well, thank you for that. And the only thing I will add is that 
I mean, you should investigate the color purple, no matter who you are, because I really do think that it's it's such there's a reason that the story has gone from book to movie to musical. It speaks in so many ways. Um, it creates a lot of understanding. It is, you know, though it is set 1909 to 1949, it feels the people are timeless. Um, what they're dealing with is timeless. And so particularly, mm. I, you know, the musical world speaks to me, the theatrical world speaks to me because when it's in front of you like that and when it's coming through music, I think you feel it in a different way. So if there is ever a production of The Color Purple near you, I urge you to see it. Um, you can listen to the album on Spotify and all those places. And of course the movie and Alice Walker's original book are available all over visit your local public library. And I just want to say thank you again to all of you so much for your energy and your expertise and your time. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Why We Theater is a product of the Broadway Podcast Network. It's edited and mixed by Derek Gunther. If you like the show, subscribe at bpn.fm slash WWT or Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was unjustly taken from them and pay my respect to elders both past and present. Special thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.